You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee. I'm a lawyer at Acumen Law Corporation. You probably already know that. And uh, with me today is my erstwhile co-host. Is it fair to call you that? I don't know what erstwhile means. I'm okay. I'm happy to be here, co-host. Okay, happy to be here this time. No, I'm happy to be here all the time. It's just that I, you know, usually we're recording at the end of the day. I I'm I'm sharper probably in the morning. I don't want to come across as sharper as... in the morning. Half. <laughs> half the time like, you're not rolling into the office until 10 30. you know i hate that i hate that because i've got this reputation for that i drop off my son at school at a couple minutes before nine and i'm in the office by 9 15 most days and some days as you will note in the last few months i've been in the office at eight o'clock 7 30 so but i'm i'm Admittedly, on those days, I'm also not that sharp. So, <laughs> uh, probably the uh, the time to get me is uh, at about two fifteen. Two fifteen. That's a magic in number. The afternoon. Yeah. Well, two fifteen or one forty four. Yep. Okay. Well, unfortunately, that's the middle of the work day, and sitting down to record a podcast is not something I have time for. There's also for. lots of noise. There's yeah. lots of noise in phone our office ring, and questions. vehicles driving by and sirens and phone ringing and yeah. Yep. Anyway, since you were last here and we last had the opportunity to talk about the wonderful, crazy, ever-evolving, fast-paced world of driving law, something has happened. And I don't know if you remember, but I think it was the last time we recorded together, you surprised me with a topic about the sort of camera enforcement of noise laws. That'll show you. I had a topic idea. I know. I can't believe I hadn't heard about the issue, though. Usually, we before we start the podcast, Kyla might tell me what the topics are, and then you know I may be surprised. So, but I uh, don't want to tell you because then you start rehearsing what you're going to say, and then you don't sound natural. And yeah, maybe sometimes it's better that I have a chance to think about it, and maybe I come across as a little bit brighter. But in any event, yes, I surprised you, and uh, I'm glad I did. Yeah. 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 But so let's talk about it so people know what it's all about. So that was weeks ago and they implemented it. They put in the cameras that made noise and within a couple of weeks of installing them or detected noise rather within a couple of weeks of installing them, the project was a massive failure. So what it was, was basically an expansion of sort of the red light camera thing and this was to deal with vehicles making excessive noise. And I had that complaint when I used to live on White Avenue and 99th Street in Edmonton, hot summer nights, you have to leave the window open. Um, of course you have screens because there's lots of mosquitoes there, much worse than in uh, most parts of British Columbia. But in any event, motorcycles would go ripping by at midnight and it was awful. And I mean, we have the same problem in British Columbia, but um, in uh, in Edmonton, it was uh, quite an irritating thing. But I also spoke about driving my Triumph Spitfire through the rat hole and uh, making as <laughs> much noise that. as possible. So now what they were doing was they were installing some sort of uh, detection equipment 
And I guess they were they sending out tickets or what were they? No, they had a big sign. It was like basically not so much about enforcement as educating people about how much goddamn noise they were making. Oh, so it was like an embarrassment thing. That displayed how many decibels their engine was. But of course, people... discouragement signed. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that was. I thought maybe they were mailing tickets and they were like ten dollars or something like no, that. No, so even better. People, people took it as sort of a uh, an invitation to show off how loud they could go, and it turned out you'd have vehicles competing to see who was louder. How much noise can you make? Yeah, exactly. that's great. That's great. Well, I'm sure that. <laughs> That was very effective. Yeah, people were very Um, mad. There were more complaints about the noise after they went in than before, so much so that the city had to remove them. Well, usually the signs that tell you your speed are fairly effective in humiliating you to slow down. So those digital signs, I know on the highway, there's construction right now going through um, between Surrey and Abbotsford. And it's 80 kilometers an hour on Highway 1. Yep. And every time I drive through there, and I've driven through there a number of times lately, um, lots of times I've been out uh, in the valley. And uh, every time I drive through there, I, you know, I'm always sort of forced to slow down when that sign starts flashing at me. It's effective. Um, and they must have thought to themselves, well, if that embarrasses people, uh-uh, no, no. no. The whole point of having the noisy vehicle is to see how noisy you can make it. Now, I want to go on a tangent here. And I Plus, you don't have your own decibel meter. You, know, it's like, you could buy your own decibel meter. They can't cost that much money. Yeah, but you can't compare with the other guy's decibel meter. If you get it on a big digital sign, you could take photographs of it and post it on the internet. And- See, this is the thing. This must be, I'm sorry to say this, but it must be just men doing this. Because I would never have the thought of, oh, I should rev my engine as much as possible to see how loud I can make it and then see how loud the guy next to me is. Like, I don't know. Women don't have the same desire to, and I'm maybe I'm being crude here, compare dick size you're being crude um but i would say that it is a male thing and i'm a 50 year old guy and i like the idea of cars that don't pollute and so i don't like to rev my engine but i really like the sound and the feel and i like the feel of the control of it and uh also it's an opportunity to basically um you know have something uh, that is uh, better than the Tesla drivers. Well, I also think, you know, cars making noise is important from a public safety perspective. We were building all of these super silent electric cars, but if you're crossing the street or as a pedestrian or if you're a cyclist or if you're even another driver um, and you don't hear a vehicle, you know, we use all of our senses when we're moving around and those audible clues, I think, reduce accidents. What? Well, that, that, that's completely disconnected from what we're talking about here. We're talking yeah, about pe- so. here people who are willfully trying to be as noisy as possible with their cars. I know, but you brought up vehicles that are quiet. Yes, indeed, I did. Yeah, and so it's uh, all your fault. Paul. But it was a, I was making a very different point than <laughs> you. I don't know what you're trying to make, but in any event, so it backfired, and um, it's funny, backfired. There's a like full-on automotive term right there backfiring yeah, you made a you made a pun yeah it backfired yeah and i i was pulled over once in edmonton when um my the car i was driving backfired as i came really too fast around a corner and there was a police car driving at maybe 20 kilometers an hour and my car backfired and they pulled me over to search my car to see whether or not i had a gun i didn't have a gun well 
I assumed as much. Yeah, but they did search my car. I was 17 years old, and um, and then they um, there was a rookie cop there who was really quite angry and an old guy. And then they realized that uh, they probably detained us too long. There was no grounds to search our car, and uh, the old guy was like, uh, "Yeah, yeah, you can go, you can go." <laughs> so okay. Well, that's interesting. Now, update number two. That was since we last years ago. 33 years ago. You anyway, really want to, like, no, I don't. I'm done with admit it. Admit your age on the podcast so everyone, I, I, all eight of our listeners, can hear. My age is on Twitter now. I updated Twitter and put my age on there. You know, you can hide that from being publicly visible. Oh, okay. Well, I'm a uh, uh, healthy 36 year old then. Nobody will buy that. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. I don't... Update number two. We talked about red light cameras. And, you know, the great big government cash grab. We were not the only people who talked about this. I also spoke about this um, to some extent with Ian Tootill. And the entire Sense BC organization has been very vocal about it since the government announced its intention to do red light speed camera enforcement. You and I were vocal about the issue. There's been discussions about which technology they would use, if it was going to be radar or they were going to have some sort of drive over the line system or if they were going to use multiple point -to -point photographs, point-to-point cameras. Point -to -point cameras. Yeah. Um, and um, we just assumed that when the, the worst. government was floating this idea that it was another one of those things that was a fait accompli, they'd already decided to do it. And, and I believe that's true. I think they did already decide to do it. But they'd already identified the intersections. They'd already picked an implementation date. They'd already probably ordered the equipment. Well, we heard that they ordered equipment, but there was a like, yeah, we, we got it third hand. Uh, but from somebody who That's apparently works in it, who Probably. said that they ordered equipment. And it, it, that wouldn't surprise me at all that they'd ordered the equipment. But um, uh, we uh, kicked off our own little campaign and we were actually um, talking to the guys at SenseBC and they were doing the same thing. And we wanted to make sure that we didn't cross over on anything. But we started making some freedom of information requests for information from the government to figure out whether or not they could justify any of this with facts. <laughs> and um, I don't think we've got anything yet. We've got some of our FOI back. We we had one back where they told us it was way too broad, which is one of the things they usually do. Well, but they obviously know we're digging. Yeah. And they know we were critical and outspoken about it. I mean, I don't think that our government has been sort of under any misconceptions about us or since BC being critical and outspoken about anything that relates to driving. You've been on the news about it a few times. I think so I did you. a couple of, yeah, I, I can't remember all the radio programs. I don't <laughs> think I was on TV for any of it. Yeah, you were, you were on TV, you were on Global with uh, Ted Chernecki. Oh yeah, sure enough, I was on Global. Ted's so wonderful. Yeah. Shout out to Ted Chernecki. He's great. He is great. Um, in any event, yeah, so the government now has done what, Kyla? They have walked it back. They haven't said they're not going to do it. They said they're going to delay the implementation of it to sometime next fall, which, you know, in government speak is probably never. Well, they might still do it. And I, you know, I still think that this is a fait accompli. I, I, it's just a, I, I, I won't say a fait accompli now, obviously, because that's not. But look at the timing. Look at next yeah. fall. What is next fall? That's. 2019 and when is the next provincial election is it um it's not wouldn't be next spring it wouldn't be next fall it'd be the following 
the following fall. Well, spring or fall. No, they set election date. So it, I think it is fall. I think it was moved to fall. So yeah. it'd be a year after that. So I no, I don't, I don't think it's election related. I think it's, uh, you know, I'm going to speculate. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh, I think our FOIs have put them in a difficult oh, yeah. it position. Would be spring because the government changed in the fall. But... Yeah, no, but we have set election dates in BC. It's yeah. by legislation. Yeah, and I know it was by legislation that it was supposed to be, um, they were spring elections and then they were changing it. So I don't know if it's a spring or a fall election. Yeah, There's an interesting thing. If you're interested in uh, elections, you take a look back in history and you'll see fall elections favor the incumbent. And I researched that at one point when I realized sort of the process. But back to uh, the red light camera. So um, not a fait accompli. Uh, I think that it's, um, you know, we'll never be able to avoid the future of being governed by robots. But I think that they may have come to the conclusion that they do not have the data to justify it and that our FOIs uh, would have revealed that they were doing it purely on speculation. Or... As the cynical among us say, it's a great big government cash grab. Our favorite thing, I, I, I want to talk about our talk like a pirate day well, for a I minute. did want to talk about it too. Wait, did we? Did We didn't discuss we this. We haven't talked about it yet. So, um, yeah, so that was we, the I great big government cash it. grab is, is um, you know, and it's not justified by evidence. And I think that's the problem that they've got. And I think they're just going to look for the evidence, find the evidence, and then they're going to justify it. Now, let's talk about our Talk Like a Pirate Day. This is sort of slightly off topic in the sense that it's not a change or an announcement or an interesting issue in driving law. It was something wild and crazy and fun that we did for uh, the greatest holiday ever invented, Talk Like a Pirate Day. Yeah, it was a good time. Um, it was uh, conceived of in the summer. We had a... Uh, uh, pirate day boat ride with uh this pirate cruise company on based on granville island and we went out as an office and uh, we discovered that we had a uh significant skill in talking like pirates Yar. and uh could behave like pirates and then kyla said why don't we do some videos where we explain um some aspects of the law in bc in pirate lingo, uh, dressed as pirates for talk like a pirate day. You yeah. make me sound so reasonable in the way I presented it to you, but I'm pretty sure I was like, oh, I have a crazy idea. You know, how I get excited and something stupid comes out my mouth. Yeah, it was something like that, but it was a great idea. I mean, it was, it was a great <laughs> idea because we had so much fun. So we didn't have a whole lot of time to put it together because, you know, there's people who are away. It's the summertime. We're always very busy in the summertime. Yeah. We had our busiest August. I think that, well, we had our busiest August ever. Um, and um, we had uh, to prepare for our, our thing. And we didn't want to do uh, half measures. We wanted to do the full thing that we initially conceived of. So we converted um, a significant portion of our website, including the main page. Uh, we decided to make it go pirate for the day. Uh, and um, we um, decided all our social media would uh, would go pirate, at least for Kyla, myself, and the office. Yeah, and, I think I uh, tweeted only in pirate speak. Yeah, yeah. So this was, uh, of course, Wednesday the 19th. And the... Um, we also created these videos and the videos were a lot of fun. We shot them all in one day in uh, the back of the Richmond office. We built a pirate ship um, that was uh, over a couple of days before. Yeah, I don't know that it was seaworthy. 
No, I mean, it was so unseaworthy that we didn't want to leave it outside because the the upper deck floor was made from a door that was <laughs> reinforced with cardboard. So it, I don't even think it could have withstood the rain. But um, yeah, no, we had a great time and painted a big green screen. And then over the course of one day on a Sunday, mm-hmm. we did all our videos, most of them in one take. Um, they were fairly short scenes, but most of them in one take. And man, did we have a lot of fun. Yeah, we did uh, We did our own costumes and makeup. I mean, we did it all ourselves. It was it was like a full-on, like, hands-on project. Yeah, we had the people from Brazen Bull. We'll talk about Brazen Bull one day. But we had the people from Brazen Bull, an advertising company we work with, um, do the uh, video editing and uh, help us with changing the website because we don't have time for all of this stuff. Uh, and uh, do the video and took our initial scripts that Kyla and I wrote and converted them into into better ones better ones yeah and and broke them up in a manner that that made sense but we um, we put it all together and we put it together in a crazy sequence uh, you know not prepared to not really understanding how it was going to look in the end and uh, Lewis and Stephanie from Brazen Bull did a great job. They put it together, put our videos together. All of the videos are still on YouTube. All of our tweets still exist. We've uh, we're not deleting we've anything. Depirated the uh, the website, but we had a lot of fun on Talk Like a Pirate Day. Um, you know, dealing with that. But I have to tell you, at the end of that day of shooting, you know, we are now. What is the what is the date now? It's the like the twenty first or something. Yeah. Um, and uh, 20th. 20th. And Tomorrow's the 21st. Okay. Well, it's close enough. Um, it really felt like somebody had taken some fiberglass and put it on the end of a stick and rubbed it around in my throat because my throat was so sore that night. I could not sleep that Sunday night. Yeah. So I, much pain. And it was exhausting too. Like I felt to badly pun here like I'd been shot out of a cannon and I still after nine hours of shooting had to go to the office and do all my legal work well I know I had to clean up um which I you know I managed to do that night and by the time I got home I was completely non-functional that was a very and and I didn't sleep because my throat hurt so much I couldn't sleep so uh and I still it feels like I can still feel the pain from that but man did we suffered for our we suffered for our art, but um, you know you can judge our acting. Our videos are still up there, and uh, it is uh, reliable uh, information. Actually, if you're looking for legal information <laughs> yeah. on those points, if you can, <laughs> if you replace the you know driver sailor with driver and uh, Her Majesty's Royal Navy with uh, the police, um, you will find that uh, we were still accurate in our description of all the different things, um, and we had a lot of fun doing it. And we uh, thank all the people who gave us such great feedback. We didn't expect it to be 100% good feedback. We thought there'd no. be some sticks in the I mud who would complain. I know, I thought people were going to be like, oh, lawyers need to be less cool than you guys are. Yeah, uh, and nobody, nobody, everybody was good. Everybody yeah. was good about it. I think it. some people said, I don't like pirates or what the fuck are you doing? But it was more like, what the fuck are you doing? And then they got the joke and they were like, this is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So that was good. Um, there was the one guy who just said he just just generally didn't like pirates. But that's fine. You uh, don't have to like pirates. You can be lame if you really want. <laughs> well, I, no, I mean, the point is these are not real. It's not a, even a real pirate. It's no. the romanticized yeah. 18th century pirate. I mean, it's it's not your, you know, starving uh, jerk who comes and kills people. We, you know, we were we were we were friendly pirates. Yeah. Except, we except when like we had very- these. 
Pirates of the Caribbean pirates. Not 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 the Disney franchise, but the the ride at Disneyland. We were very friendly pirates. Anyway, we had a spectacularly good time, and I hope you enjoy it. If you find it uh, on the internet, you can watch all of our pirate videos are still up there. And are we going to be pirates next year on Talk Like a Pirate Day? Yeah. Probably not. No, I don't think. I think we've worked that uh, that uh, issue, that idea to the bone. I think there's not much left there to be pirates about. No. Um, but not only has Talk Like a Pirate Day made this week more exciting, this week was also very exciting because we went to Ottawa. Yes, indeed, we did. And I don't know if anyone has been listening to this podcast other than Brandon, our articled student. Hi, Brandon. Um, the, uh, since episode one. Brandon's probably a lawyer when this thing, yeah. know, when this no. podcast comes out tomorrow. It's any day. Any it's not day. tomorrow. It's any day. He just needs somebody to. Am I going to make him a lawyer? Oh, maybe. Yeah, Emma That'd could make fine. him a lawyer. That would be fun. Um, I, the first time I made someone a lawyer was Emma, and I, I kind of felt like I was exercising this great power, like I could turn her from an ordinary person into a lawyer and like well, now we wave have, a magic wand. Now that we have swords in the office, you can like tap swords on their shoulders. and That's to knight somebody. Well, we could also do it to make them lawyers. Sure. Um, we'd probably get sued. By whom? I don't know. Someone afraid of getting nicked by a sword. Haven't you ever read the, what is that? I want to say the Great Green Giant, but that's not the name. I can't remember. The Green Knight. See if you can find our sword fight when you're watching the videos and look for the one moment where Kyla gets scared. Yeah, <laughs> fuck you. I can't believe you, you you led them to the point where I broke character. Uh, you it's just, just a it split second. Uh, but better than that is try and find the one where we talk about marijuana impaired driving and look for the scene where we discuss discuss the cash grab. That's what we I think we wanted to talk about when yep. we first mentioned the pirate videos. That's what steered us to this. But no, I want to go back to our very first podcast. You and I talked about Bill C-75. Ooh, evil. Yeah. And we were in Ottawa this week um, talking also about Bill C-75 to the House of Commons. So I thought maybe we could revisit the C-75 discussion now that you've actually read the bill um and revisit the um revisit the sort of evil or troubling um you know to be more fair uh, aspects of the bill uh there are um two things that got a lot of news in the bill i usually read uh, very often i read those new bills like the day they come out yeah, I so think don't, there was just, don't, no, don't no, there was some, it was, it was Easter and you were dealing with family stuff and yeah. um the thing that got uh, sort of the attention of the news media were things that mm, are issues and we felt other people were in a better position to talk about. And that was preliminary hearings and, and changes to jury selection. Yeah. But we had some particular concerns, um, three uh, really, really significant concerns. One was, and this is just abhorrent, and anybody I, I mention it to who's a lawyer just can't believe the government has tried to do this, uh, was... Uh, police evidence in criminal cases being submitted by way of affidavit. With no cross-examination. Yeah. Um, that is uh, just sort of shocking that they would, uh, the boldness 
that the government would actually think that this is something that they can do and get away with it. And Uh, when we were there, we were, I think, maybe some of the first people up, although they'd mentioned that they were continuing their study. But I know that our, um, our discussion came right after people from the DOJ. And they had been asked about the bill and why did you do this? And they seemed to be of the impression that this would only be used in circumstances where the evidence was going to be non-controversial. That uh, I think what was one guy put it that no, no sane crown would attempt to introduce the whole case by way of affidavit. Well, not even the whole case. He was trying to suggest that no sane crown would introduce anything that was controversial by way of affidavit. And I, I just my instant I, reaction was bullshit. I, I wanted to stand up and and ask what the fuck he was talking about. And, and I mean, reason- I know like we're you're giving evidence there, and you, everybody's always nice and polite and everything. But like to 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 say that was shocking to me. And then to somehow compare it to circumstances where we have a an agreed statement of facts, um, it which is completely different. That's an agreement. Yeah. You know, um, this is the Crown trying to prove their case uh, via affidavit. And if you look at the legislation, what does it allow them to call? Literally everything. Everything a police officer does. Anything, basically anything that a police officer does routinely in the course of their work. So making observations, collecting handling evidence, um, reading charter rights of warnings, interviewing suspects or witnesses, like all the usual stuff. And they were like, well, it's only going to be used to prove continuity because sometimes, you know, the defense lawyer won't tell you whether you're going to, they're going to admit continuity until the day of the trial and you're all prepared to do it. Well, yeah, that's what happens. Sometimes you don't get those instructions from your client. Sometimes you're waiting for a last minute piece of disclosure. Sometimes you don't know about a legal issue because you're still trying to find a case on it or you're waiting for something from an appellate court. Like there's all sorts of reasons we don't make admissions about things. Well, and often enough, it's because the prosecutor hasn't read the file, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with the sort of degree of focus and attention that you would like them to a month before. Uh, and they're only reading it the day before. And that's when they're starting to is gelling in their mind how things are going to play out. But the other thing that I found so like offensive about saying that it would only be used in those circumstances is that this is coming from the DOJ, like the Federal Prosecution Service, the people who prosecute drug cases. And in drug cases that we've done, we know that there are often warrants. Um, that's, you know, where you most often see the use of warrants in, in Canadian law, um, other than like blood warrants and impaired cases. Um, and the warrants, the challenges to the warrants, you, you can't just cross-examine, for those who don't know, when the person who gets the search warrant, applies for the search warrant, um, comes to court, you don't have the right already in law to cross-examine them on their application and to find out whether or not the warrant was valid by cross-examining them. You have to have first a threshold hearing with the judge where you have to prove to the judge why cross-examination is necessary or beneficial and will maybe reveal one of these issues that would invalidate a warrant, like, you know, the failure to make full and frank disclosure or, you know, something of that nature. 
So that's the obligation with a warrant is they're providing a sworn document. It's like an affidavit called an information to obtain. And they're supposed to give full and frank disclosure. Basically, all of the information that the uh, the trier of fact needs to, I guess it's a, it's a judge and they're applying the law there, but needs to make that determination that it is uh, correct in law to issue the warrant. And so often we get the information to obtain and we look at it and we can see that the police officer has misled the court. And there's a couple, we've had a few notable cases in our office. And then there's been lots of times when we looked at it and decided, well, you know, we're not going to go any further. You'd think in those circumstances, you'd get to phone the prosecutor and say, look, there's obviously an issue here. We need to cross-examine the affiant on the application to get a search warrant. So why don't you just consent to that? And then we'll save, you know, three hours of court time when you come and bring a bunch of cases that say that you need to have an affidavit to explain why you want to cross-examine, even though the Supreme Court of Canada has said you don't, and you end up having the same circular argument again and again. The judge will then grant leave to cross-examine because there's an obvious issue on the face of it. But every single time, the DOJ opposes the application. And I had one recently where on the application for the search warrant, the officer referred to my client as having gone out and exchanged a tightly wrapped paper package with another individual in a few minutes long meeting before driving away. And when I was reviewing the police officer's surveillance logs, it was not my client who did that, but another person entirely, and my client wasn't even there. So that's pretty So there's two points. Significant. There's the reliability I, of the police officer's affidavit. Let me finish. Sorry. That's huge. Like, that's an obvious falsehood on a very material issue um, in the information to obtain a search warrant that, you know, behavior consistent with drug trafficking that is you know, in, intended to suggest that my client is involved in drug trafficking, and that's not even him. And they opposed my application to cross-examine on that when I could tell the judge that wasn't him. And when they said, we, we agree, that wasn't him, but we're still opposing the application. So there's two points there. There's the one point is that obviously the DOJ is not going to take a reasonable position. No on when you need to cross-examine a police officer under these circumstances where they want to put his evidence in by way of the police officer's evidence, him or her, by way of an affidavit. And two, it points out that police officers don't always tell the truth in affidavits. And this is our concern. And for the Department of Justice lawyers to come along and sort of go, this is all going to be fine. You know, this is just going to force them into, uh, you know, speed things up. And then at one point, when we yeah. were watching the lawyer for the Department of Justice, these guys, I could not believe that they could stand there, sit there, and and advocate for this. But one of the things they said was, well, you know, if we get uh, a lawyer who's not going to be agreeable on uh, something that's, uh, you know, very clear, then we'll take him out to the, we'll take him, bring him into court, you know, we'll take him out to the woodshed out back and teach him a lesson and, you know, like, what the fuck yeah, and you know they're all—they're not getting the information that we get from our clients about how shit may have gone down. They don't have access to that. But the you know the scary part about this is if you do have to go to the woodshed, so to speak, you either have to reveal that information that your client gave you that's privileged and that may impact some angle or defense in their case that you have the right to keep 
to yourself and then put you in a sort of a positive disclosure obligation. And it's not done on a without prejudice basis where the Crown can't rely on it later on or the police can't use it to further their investigation and get some new piece of evidence or anything like that. It's just you you take your shot and reveal your hand and then possibly impugn your whole cross-examination by doing so. And you never know what the prosecutor is going to tell a police officer. You have no idea how that information is going to travel. You, you know, you, you would like to trust them, but I can't trust anybody who thinks that they're the ones who get to make the decision about what or who's I character. and my client are going to advance as a fucking defense. And like, also fuck, characterize you know, it as going to the woodshed. Look, it's, it's not, you know. Like put the hatchet down. Yeah, I know. Like you're thinking it's not just put the hatchet down. I mean, what kind of, of prosecutorial thought process is this where they come to the conclusion that they, the prosecutors are in the position to school the defense lawyers on defending their clients. You're before the court. You know, you, you, you're supposed to be equal. If you're taking the position that you are some parent as the, as the, uh, uh, violent parent, uh, as the state, as your, in your position as the state is, is to be a, a, a violent parent to go and correct somebody for their misbehavior, uh, that's a disturbing, disturbing viewpoint to come from. Uh, and frankly, I, I, I think that's a, a terrible, uh, way for any prosecutor to think it yeah. just it i find that absolutely it's repulsive I, I was inconsistent with the role of a quasi minister of justice i was surprised they could find anybody to come and defend that because every prosecutor i've talked to thinks it's stupid uh but, but to you're find only somebody to the scene ones. <laughs> but to find somebody to defend it and then to characterize it that way uh was i mean i i uh, is sort of beyond the pale, I guess, is the phrase. Uh, it was, it was, it was something I could barely stomach sitting there, and yeah. I'm, I'm angry about it, and I think it has to be uh, called out. Now we, we did not call it out when we were there. Not that well. We were, I, I we spoke to one way, of the but... ministers about that, and um, one of the uh, elected officials or members of parliament, um, and that member of parliament clearly understood what I was saying, but. We did do written submissions, mm -hmm. and we laid it all out in our written submissions, basically, you know, not that part, not the way that it was being characterized by the government, but did lay out the problems with it. And that the interesting pretty, like, thing high was, praise on our well, not just high praise, people seem to think that we are more forthright, uh, outspoken, and willing to call it out. And well, I don't know, I just call things like I see them, and I see usually see them through a very cynical lens. But maybe the problem here is that people, when they get there um, and they're making their submissions, are they're so uh, careful and not wanting to offend everybody. Like everybody started their submissions except us saying, well, we recognize and, and thank the government for these important legislative goals that they're doing. And like, I'm sorry, there's not time for those pleasantries. I, you don't have to explain to me that, you know, I crime assume, is a problem yeah, in, in every society. Speeding up trials is good. And I assume that when the government passes legislation, they're doing it for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> they must have a goal. Yeah. <laughs> but let, like, let's just cut to the point here. This is fundamentally unfair. It's wrong. It's contrary to our whole concept of of uh, innocent until proven guilty and and uh, the right to silence and the right to confront the evidence and uh, a fair trial process. Um, and uh, it's not something that's going to withstand a charter challenge 
when the day comes. And we know that prosecutors are not going to apply correctly. And even prosecutors I've talked to who say, yeah, this is awful. Like, this is awful. I hate to see it in my society, but I'm going to try and run an entire paper case the moment this law comes out. Like, well, yeah. yeah. Why, and why wouldn't you? I mean, I know there are there are numerous prosecutors out there who don't dislike me as a person, I think. I think they like me, but they also know that letting me cross-examine a police officer is an incredibly time-consuming, painful process for everyone involved, myself included. They don't know that part, but if they're listening now, they do. Um, and uh, it's a lot easier to just throw in the affidavit and maybe foreclose that possibility for me. I mean, to be fair, I dig out a lot more truth than the officer would have otherwise led in court. Your your cross-examinations are very effective and they are like full-on proof of the value of the process. There's lots and lots of times that police officers admit how they put that evidence uh, in their report that's not accurate when you know you you get it from them ultimately it's the proof is in the pudding the value of cross examination in my mind is is not lost but my point is that even good prosecutors who recognize that this is unfair and wrong recognize that it's also an adversarial system and they will try and use it for the benefit of of their side of the the crown to try and win a conviction and they always think that everybody's guilty prosecutors don't run trials if they don't think that people are guilty. I mean, I know in Ontario they probably do that, but in in British Columbia, for the most part, most prosecutors are quite sensible and they won't run a trial if somebody if they think somebody is guilty. But they will take every advantage they can. Guilty. They won't yeah, if they think somebody's not guilty. <laughs> if they think someone's guilty, they're gonna run the trial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the point yes, I know I caught that. I heard myself after when you looked at me like that. Um but the point is yeah, of course they're going to do it. It's an adversarial system. It's an advantage to them to do it that way. They will try and put in whatever they can by affidavit, and then it's going to end up a fight. And there's so many procedural problems with it, which we discussed as well when we yeah. when we presented. And I think you can probably find it linked somewhere off our website. I know that um, somebody usually up to, uploads those things onto the website. You might be able to see it. Uh, the frustrating thing every time you're presenting there is you've got like four minutes to talk and you're like, okay, how can I get to the next point? And where, what, what next point am I going to get to? And then, then you're sort of, you want to get through that to sort of lay the groundwork. So they'll redirect questions to you afterward, because that's where you actually get your opportunity to say something. And it's the, it's the questions from the opposition, which are the ones that are the most valuable generally. Yeah. But the questions are also, I think from having been there bunch a bunch three times now um it seems like they've got their questions prepared in advance each each minister mp um has a like an issue that they care about or that seems important to them and they ask about that it's unfortunate that some of the questions are their preachy opportunity to talk about something that isn't even related to your presentation but that's fine. No, I mean, I, I get that. They're there to they speak also on asked, the whole bill. Yeah, I also, you know, we were also both asked about the things that we did talk about. And, and again, we've got our written submissions are now part of the evidence. Yeah. So it, we've laid it out. But I guess I think about previous pieces of legislation that are stupid or problematic or, you know, 
that we've looked at and and uh, have been a gross failure, like the elimination of evidence to the contrary in Bill C-2 back in 2008. And I greatly regret not flying to Ottawa then, going before a parliamentary committee or the Senate and laying out those problems that we knew were going to happen, which have happened. Um, you know, it's been a slightly different winding road than what we predicted, but we also predicted that, you know, it would lead to uh, the possibility of innocent people being convicted and uh, and other uh, unexpected consequences. And uh, I, I regret that I wasn't uh, outspoken enough. I mean, there's no point in going to those committees if you're just going to go there and it's going to be a shoulder rubbing uh, event. <laughs> you, you know, you've got to go there and you've got to you've got to be the the sandpaper that that grinds them down a little bit. No. Uh, uh, in the last few minutes, there's one final thing I want to talk about, and I'm going to take you by surprise because I I think you maybe don't want to talk about this, but I think it's important to talk about while we're on the subject of making legislative changes that either aren't necessary or, at least in my opinion, are poorly thought out. And that is the recent amendment, uh, well, I guess not so recent amendment, but recent constitutional challenge decision to the immediate roadside prohibition scheme after it was amended to uh, put the burden on the police or on the driver rather than on the police to prove why the prohibition should be revoked. And that constitutional challenge was not successful. But even though it was the government's decision to amend a law that was already determined to be constitutionally valid, and the government put themselves in the position of knowing that they were going to be constitutionally challenged again, unlike the first two challenges, three challenges to the IRP scheme, this time the government said, okay, now you have to pay us the costs of this proceeding. I was talking to a lawyer from, where was Washington? Washington. Yes. Uh, earlier, Scott Wonder, lovely guy you should have on your program. And he was telling me that when it's a constitutional challenge in the states, uh, or at least in Washington, not only do you not pay costs, chances are your costs are going to be covered win or lose, and, and you may get funding from the state to run the constitutional challenge. Here um, at the end of the constitutional challenge on the third 3.5 version of the IRP scheme, which was a fundamental change, changing mm -hmm. the burden of proof. Um, it's like you had to know. Yeah. So the government came back at the end and said, oh, yeah, we want you to pay costs. And so you had to go and argue that. Yeah, we had a hearing in front of the judge who decided the case and the government stood up and said, you know, the successful party gets costs. So we're entitled to them and they have to prove why they're not uh, why they're not required to pay costs, which I thought was a little bit of kind of like a dickish position to take like you've never asked for costs thus far um you know you, the successful party is entitled to costs in circumstances where there's a reasonable expectation they should pay those costs and then they said they brought a constitutional challenge they knew was doomed to fail um which it, a wasn't even what the court determined in the decision like the judge she gave careful consideration to the issues and you know made a decision at the end of the day that the the law was fine, um, and you know we're appealing that, and that's cool. But I, I I still think that it was something that she could come to no other decision based on the on the at that level of court. I think she was bound to yeah, and come well, to that conclusion, their, and it's got to be something that goes to the court of appeal after all. I I mean I thought she yeah. might have been able to find some way, but I felt that you know, she, 
being the, the superior level of court is still inferior to the court of appeal that it's going to have to go to well, the court of appeal. Well, this too was part of their argument. They're like, this was already argued in three cases, including in this case called Gregory, that was decided. And so they were arguing it on the basis of decided law. But at the time that we had the hearing in December of 2017, Gregory hadn't been decided by the Court of Appeals. So their entire argument about why they should get costs was premised on the fact that a case was decided when it wasn't decided. Well, they also had an argument. That they also argued that the costs are there to encourage settlement. Yeah. And, uh, like there's, it's like, a constitutional challenge. Yes, we you know, will settle. The, the court has to make a decision. That's the only way to do it. Is, the only way to do it is for the court to make a decision and make give some clarity to the law. Yeah. Um, you know, if <laughs> there's no settlement. I mean, if the if the government wanted to revoke all those IRPs for everybody because their their change uh, in the onus had brought it back to the position of the first version of the scheme, which is partially what we argued, then great. But uh, that was not in the cards. So, you know, if, if they're arguing something that's not available, uh, you know, again, it's, it just seems so absurd to us that they made this argument. But Kyla went and argued it. Yeah. Uh, in BC Supreme Court, and then she was uh, unavailable for the decision, so I went for the decision. And ultimately, in the end, the the uh, decision was a, a thoughtful decision, considering the judge was giving it off the bench. It was pretty and like quick. like two hours after the argument. Yeah, but she, she didn't want to head off the fact that um, this law, the IRP law, is going to be affected by Bill C-46, um, and which is going to lead to more constitutional challenges. Um, yeah, and, like part of our argument was, you know, it's going to be challenged again. <laughs> yeah, because the, the the provincial government is relying on federal legislation that's going to be impugned uh, in a matter of weeks now, once the uh, October... Is 27 it? days! Yeah, um, when C-46 comes into effect. And um, so, the, you know, there's a chilling effect of that. Uh, but the judge did also say that, uh, you know, counsel should be warned now that the government's going to take a different position with respect to costs. And I, 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 it bothers me so much because, you know, there are very good, substantial, legitimate reasons that uh, parties have to bring the government to court and sue the government. And the, the discouragement or disincentive of costs in those circumstances um, really is, uh, it, it, it's contrary to our, the, the best health of our democracy, in my view. Yeah. And so uh, I guess this week, to recap, our discussion was good health of our democracy in, you know, a strange way of public protest, getting rid of dumb robot enforcement in Edmonton, and then good state of our democracy in that the provincial government has rethought our... Um, you know, our red light speed enforcement camera issue, at least for now, they're looking into it more. Okay, state of our democracy in that, yes, there's C-75, which is not good in my view, but the government is, has a process by which it consults people and it gives it careful consideration before it passes this. And, well, then, our, our, and our concerns are on the record. And when somebody yep. runs the constitutional challenge, they're going to be able to say they were warned. We warned them, yeah. And then, you know, bad state of our democracy for the IRP scheme. So really, nothing's changed since we last talked. A lot has changed. And <laughs> we had a very, has. we had a very, very busy, uh, well, since I was on a busy month and in the last week, we've had a very, very busy week and we keep going. 
driving. Yes. So if you have a driving law related issue uh, or a driving law case or a driving law question, you can reach out to us at any time. Our number is 604-685-8889. I was so tempted to almost say it in my pirate voice there from the videos. And our website is VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.